Welcome to Garden Church Podcast. We are in a series called Courageous Orthodoxy, Convictions for Resilient Faith. And for us at this time, we are looking at the foundations of Christian belief. We are trying to encourage you as followers of Jesus to live out of a robust theology. We're hoping that you would be encouraged by this and that you will ground your faith in the Word of God and you will live a vibrant life in the way of Jesus. Hope this empowers you and encourages you in your faith. Um, quick announcement also, we're starting uh, a house of prayer, garden prayer room, uh, launches tonight actually. You know, last year in 2021, in, so two years ago, December of 2021, we were just discerning what the Lord wanted us to do for 2022. And there were a lot of things we, ch- we decided to do as a church. One was to not go to two services. We felt like the Lord say, pull back, just focus on one. Um, to start a prayer room, we started a prayer room. We felt like the Lord said, turn this house into a house of prayer for all nations. And then um, we, we, we set up these initiatives like we are going to do, like every year we do. And one of the initiatives at the beginning of the year, we're like, we want to we wanna get a building. We had no idea. We started this initiative. It was called Vision Builders. We started it in January of 2022. We had no strategy, no plan. We just knew that we have to be, our, we have to be set on getting a building at some point. And, um, and then here we are. Look at this. Without a lot of planning or strategy, we moved quickly into this place. It was, it was remarkably fast. Um, and since being here, I have had this burning conviction in my heart. For lots of reasons. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story another time. This is not my sermon, so don't count this as my sermon my time, okay? Start the clock over. <laughs> We're going to let people at 11 just wait. I'm not going to be hurried today. I, I'm serious. I, I want this to be a place where we see God and we see his presence. And we, are, we need the word of the Lord. And we need to be together and seek Jesus together. How amazing are the testimonies of these kids? Are you kidding me? I said week one here, we don't have an indoor playground, but we're going to disciple your kids, and I'm seeing the fruit. And that's parenting. That's the environment of our church. That's what the Lord has on this next generation here and out there. We're seeing it. But I know that since we've been here, like, my heart, like, I I can't sleep at night. I've been, I've been, like, waiting. (laughs) I've been talking to our staff too, too frequently, breaking rules that we've set of boundaries, um, because I, I just said, we have to pray together. And so tonight, we're starting for the next foreseeable future, a 6 to 8 p.m. worship and prayer night every Sunday. And we're going to have a prayer every day, um, except Saturday. We're gonna, we want to honor the Sabbath. So fr- uh, basically Sunday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m., you can be here for prayer. On Wednesday, we're going to have a 12 to 1 prayer. On Wednesday, we're going to have morning, noon, and night prayer and worship. Um, we're going to have a midweek service starting this Wednesday. I, I felt like the Lord say, you need to uh, go back to the teachings where I did teachings on preparing your heart and lives for revival. People that know me know I've talked about revival since I started the church. There were like three of us. And I was like, we're, we're prepping for revival. My wife's like, you've been talking about it so much. I'm like, I, that's all I want to see. I will be faithful to steward a local church in honor preaching in and out of season. But when God begins to pour out his spirit, which he has done so frequently in the past, it brings life to the church in a way that you just can't, you, can't, you have to change. You have to, you have to move the systems. You have to rearrange the household for when God decides to show up. And he's showing up right now. He started, he's, he's done something in Asbury. Some of our team went to Asbury. 
What I love, uh, lots of friends are there, leadership. We know some of the leadership that's there. Our team went and they were part of the ministry team there, praying for people. What was most remarkable for them and some of the stories I've heard is that it, there's, there's absolutely nothing sexy about it. There's no professional teacher. There's no great worship. There's no fog machine, stage lights. There's no LED screen. There's no famous worship people. There's no celebrities whatsoever. It is a move of God, a move for people to go after God. And that's it. It's like God put his finger on it. But, but I will say this, every revival in history, this is not part of my sermon, it's just coming out. People were preparing for it. People were expecting revival to come. The guy behind Asbury, one of the, the professors who, who's written his dissertation on uh, travailing prayer, which is the thing where God puts this thing inside of your heart and there's groans, there's, 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 there's these, these utterances, there's a broken heart for God to move for the sake of the nation, for the sake of generation. You need Jesus and you just cry out. That always precedes revival. He's the guy that talked about it for years, preparing Asbury for what would come. And then of course it comes. And what we do is we, we bring our lawn chairs and we just expect it to to be like a show, but it can happen anywhere. There are, there are conditions within your heart, within your life that can prepare you for a sovereign move of God. You look back to the early movements uh, that happened, the Reformation, what happened, what happened in the, uh, with the Wesleys in the UK, what happened with the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, the, the revival that's taken place with the Pentecostal revival, the Welsh revival that preceded the Hebrides revival, the Jesus movement. Anyone see the Jesus revolution? I, I just, everyone needs to go see this movie. I'm not getting paid for it. I just wept half the movie, shaking, Talked for like 40 minutes. I didn't answer my phone. My wife thought I got hit by a car on the way home. She was nervous. I went with some friends. But we were stirred. God, do it again. It's so ordinary. It just takes us depending on God and nothing else. God comes where he's wanted. And I'll tell you what, when you're satisfied, you don't need God. When you're not hungry or when you filled yourself with all the wrong things, you don't need God. When the revival comes, all the other idols have to go. All the other forms of conditioning need to, need to be reoriented around the coming of God and his presence. All I want you to know is I want to lead us to Jesus. This week I repented a lot. I was so moved. I'm giving you inner life of my vulnerable place. People love when I get, this is the hardest part of my job. I know how flawed I am. I know how broken I am. My wife knows how broken I am. And my kids and my close friends. But then you get on a platform and you say some things that make you look holy and you just think he's, he's further along. I'm not further along. I'm the biggest sinner in this room by far. And what's worse is I'll be judged for it because I'm a teacher. I have to give an account for what I do. It says not many of you should be become teachers for that reason. So I, I'm not saying this as like a way to like move you. I'm saying this with authenticity for the sake of sharing what happened to me. The Lord showed me how easy, how easy it is now that we have a building to define success. 
I was hoping that it would take a year or more to fill this room for one service. And we filled it on the first day, two services. And ego gets in the way, doesn't it? Pride. The Lord showed me that I am really good at defining success by all the wrong ways. And he told me that you got to get people to Jesus, not to ministry time, not to church. Get them to, get them to me and I will heal them. Get them to me and I will set them free. Get them to me and I will save them. I will change their marriage. I will change their family. I will change their life if you teach them how to get to me. And what he showed me is how to get them to church. I showed them how to get to church. I showed you how to get to ministry. I showed you how to read the word. I want you to get to Jesus. So I just, I want you to know I've been repenting a lot because I, I got to figure out how to do ministry all over again. I need you to get to Jesus. So I've been getting to Jesus every day this, this week. And I, wanted, I, wanted, I want you to go to Jesus, okay? So that's my, my announcement. We're starting a prayer room. <laughs> so let me pray, yeah? And then I have a really long, crazy talk. <laughs> and, and I was debating it all week, like, do I just talk about revival? And he's like, no, preach the word of God. I want them to know the word. Jesus, would you... First of all, forgive us for all the ways we've made Christianity a social club. All the ways we've made this a consumer-oriented machine where we dish out spiritual goods and define success by warm fuzzies or money in a basket or bucket or people attending. Lord, may our success be you, God. May our vision be you, Jesus. Forgive us for going to, the, to fasting as a way of proving ourselves rather than going to you, which is the point of the fast. Forgive us for, not, for being so hurried that we don't open your word or so busy we don't even think about you, God, in the days. And forgive us for making ministry about something else other than you, Jesus. We don't want to be famous for anything. We want you to be famous. We want our lives to be shaped by you. So Jesus, um, would you release, God, a hunger in this church that won't be satisfied apart from your presence? Would you release a hunger in our marriages that won't be satisfied except for you at the center, in our families, in our homes, in our workplace? I pray, God, that you would bring revival to this nation and beyond. Awaken us, God, not just the next generation, but every generation, God. Awaken us to who you are. And Lord, in, we want to see you do it again. Move among this nation in ways that are undeniable, not in one place, but spread like wildfire across this land, Jesus. Pour out your spirit. We want to be a container that is filled with you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're new, welcome. My name's Darren. I'm a mixed bag. Just warning you before you uh, sign the dotted line. There's no sign thing to sign, so... Uh, but you need a Bible. So if you, you don't have a Bible, great. The timer just started. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm going to say this now. At the 45 mark, 1045, if you have kids, go get your kids. We're going to probably still be preaching, so just bring them in, all right? Um, but we're in a series called uh, uh, Courageous Orthodoxy, and we are looking at things that will, convictions that will produce a resilient faith, all right? 
So grab a Bible. You're going to basically do a survey of the entire scriptures today. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers that will pass out physical Bibles to you. We want you to be flapping those pages. Can I get, I, they didn't know they were going to do that. So ushers, you're now going to pass out some Bibles. Hopefully we have some. Just keep them up and the magic, a magic black Bible will just, just fall right down in your lap in just a second. Um, we're going to start in Mark 1, but let me give you a little bit of an intro if you don't mind to kind of frame what I'm going to do today in just a moment. So, in 1616, a guy named Galileo presented a theory. Galileo was a physician, a physicist, sorry, a mathematician, an astronomer, a philosopher. He developed the theory known as heliocentrism. He proposed that the, the sun was the center of our solar system, and all the planets orbited the sun. This challenged the modern mindset which was a widely accepted theory called um, uh, geocentrism. Geocentrism said that the earth was the center of the solar system and everything else, including the sun, orbited around the earth. This theory presented by Galileo was so controversial, he was labeled a heretic by the Catholic Church. Everyone believed that the earth was the center of the universe. And what Galileo presented threatened or attacked the emotional consciousness of science and religion at its time. It challenged the way people looked and viewed the world. It changed their worldview. And if you missed last week, we presented the biblical worldview. So I'm building off of this. The reality is this, his theory was true and it took years to prove and accept. It was hard, it was challenging and it changed the way science, religion, astronomy, physics and life as we know it viewed the world because of that theory being real. The world missed truth because it was invested in the wrong story. I often think Christianity or Christians miss the truth of Scripture because our lives are invested in the wrong story. We have managed to organize our lives and our ministries and our churches around theories within Scripture that might miss the point or miss the grand large narrative of what God's doing in Scripture. Oftentimes we can reduce what God is doing in the world because of what we think God's doing with us, me. What I want to tell you is this. Your theology shapes the way you live. You need to know this. Your theology, good or bad, shapes the way you live and interact in the world. So make sure your theology is accurate and biblical. Are you with me? Yeah. So today, I'm going to give you the story of God. Okay? What is the story of God? If you were to read the whole, uh, the whole scriptures and try to summarize this canon of scripture, which we talked about last week, how would you summarize the story? There's various ways because there's various themes. You can talk about exile and homecoming. You could talk about the covenants and the law of the people of God. You can talk about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You could talk about God's presence with creation. There's a through line of the, within the story of God, within the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I want to show you this through line. This sermon is not going to answer the question, how does the story of God fit into my life? 
It's not going to answer that question, but it will show you the whole of Scripture and how the whole of Scripture points to Jesus. From the beginning of, to the end, Jesus is always at the center of the story. The sooner we realize that we are not the center of the story and that all of creation is on one specific journey that we are invited or to join in, the better our life will become. From old to the New Testament, the story of creation bends to Jesus. History points to Jesus. The present points to Jesus. The future points to Jesus. Spoil alert, you need Jesus. So let's start with Jesus today and frame the whole story. You guys good? I'm trying to warn you because some of you, if you don't like the Bible, you're going to fall asleep in this. And then when you go to heaven because you believe in Jesus, you're going to meet someone like Obadiah. And they're going to be like, what did you think of my book? You had a book? Like what? (laughs) Mark chapter 1. All right. I think for some of you, this is going to be a heliocentric moment where your eyes are going to be open. So Lord, would you just release that today? Mark chapter 1, verse 15, one verse summarizes the entire teaching of Jesus. You ready? We're going to start with one today, uh, one, one phrase. It's Mark 1, 15. It says this. Jesus says, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Rep- repent and believe the good news. This is the summary of all of Jesus' teachings according to Mark. This one verse is the summary of all of Jesus' teachings. Okay? Next week, we'll talk about the gospel. Today, we're talking about the story of God. Today, I'm talking about this phrase that was electrifying in the first century. Every single Jewish boy and girl knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said the time has come. There's two Greek words for time, kairos or uh, uh, kairos or, or chronos, excuse me. Chronos is sequential, like it's going to be 11 o'clock or 1045. Go get your kids. And kairos is opportune. It means, uh, it means like uh, on, at 1 a.m. on November 18th, 2013, my wife was pacing back and forth and she said, honey, she woke me up from a dead sleep. She said, honey, it's time. I knew it wasn't time to get up. It wasn't morning. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't time to make breakfast. I knew she meant in that moment, baby was coming, Ezra's coming into the world. It had all sorts of expectations of what was next. Honey, it's time. All right, babe. I got up. I was panicked. I was trying to do my breathing to not panic. I got in the car, forgot the bag. She's totally pacing, calm, doing her breathing exercise. She knows exactly what's going to happen. I was, I was freaking out. Honey, it's time. That's what Jesus is saying. And every Jewish boy and girl knew exactly what he meant. Because it was in the story of God. It, they, they had the story within their heart. They had been occupied by the Romans at the time that Jesus said this, but deep into the story of God, deep into the history of Israel, they knew the beginning. There was a time God promised he would act in history on their behalf. And in that very specific time, there were all sorts of expectations of what was going to come. So let's talk about the story of God and understand the context of Jesus's message from the context of the story of Israel. You guys good with this? So Genesis chapter one, here we go. I'm gonna go fast through some of this. I'm gonna give you a framework to tell the story of God. You ready? Got your Bibles? I was watching Chuck Smith 
via Jesus Revolution go, this is the word of God, and all, all the hippies raised their Bibles. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I said, I can't wait for one day to go, oh, everyone got their Bibles, and everyone raises their Bibles, and someone in our staff or in our worship team was like, yeah, I got my Bible right here. I'm like, I said, Bible, not idol. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Genesis shows us that God created all things. He created the heavens and the earth. We are not a product of chance, of atoms exploding together and hitting in a big, boom, uh, big bang. We are the, the intentional result of God's divine choice to make us, to create, and birth forth creation. Genesis chapter 3, the story, God creates hum humans in his image. And then he, uh, Genesis chapter 2, it zeroes in on the Garden of Eden. God creates Adam and Eve. He creates humanity to live in perfect, loving relationship with him. We were designed to live in shalom, where we would live in right relationship with each other. How amazing would that be? Peace on earth. Right relationship with God, always we'd know God, we'd walk with God. Right relationship with ourselves. Could you imagine not dealing with insecurity or unnecessary fear or inappropriate anger or disappointment or, or depression and anxiety that you were designed for wholeness in individual identity? Ah, oh, that's how you were intended to be. God creates this and he gives us a choice. He gave humanity a choice. You can live in right loving relationship with God. And that's gonna cost you. It's gonna cost you your freedom. You're gonna choose out of loving obedience to live the way of God or not. And guess what? We chose not to. And as a result of that, sin enters into the story. And as soon as, soon as sin enters into the story, sin is missing the mark. Sin is living outside of what God intended in the first place. Sin begins to vandalize shalom in the Garden of Eden. It begins to create chaos. Death will come into the story. The enemy gets authority and rule over creation. But I love this because it's a story. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 8, it says, Then... The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Just real quick, isn't that interesting? There was a time when God walked with his people. God was walking with Adam. And it was a, it was a, in the routine of the day was to wind down on a leisure walk during sunset with God. What does that say? about this story? What does it say about the story of God? Look, does, is God, what does it say about the desires of God's heart? He's coming to be with his people. It's his desire to be with Adam and Eve. And then it says they hid from him among the trees of the garden. And God says, but uh, the Lord God called the man, where are you? So the story starts with God creating all things to be made uh, in his uh, humanity in his image and everything to work out in shalom. And then we chose to live without God. And as a result, sin enters into the world. And as a result, the world is cursed and humanity lives in sin. And then God begins this mission to restore all things. And that's where we get to Revelation. But before we get to Revelation, we've got a lot of books to go through. Are you ready? So I'm gonna give you this story with a couple of things. So you can write this down. So you can think about this story. When Jesus gets to the place and says, it's time, what is he referring to? Stay with me. First, let's talk about Egypt. The story 
picks up from Genesis and it goes to Exodus. And it's in uh, Egypt that we really hear the story of God. What we learn in Egypt is that the people of God are enslaved for 430 years, write down 430 years to Egypt. They're under the oppression of Pharaoh, a dominant military superpower. It was the empire of their day. And they live as slaves to Pharaoh and they cry out in Exodus to God and God hears their cries. And after 430 years of slavery, God sends a messenger, Moses, to free them. So it starts in Egypt and this liberation, this exodus, this move of God takes these people who are slaves and takes them on this journey to be free. And God takes them, Moses takes them to Mount Sinai. And it's in Mount Sinai that we get this, these themes of, of the scripture where God wants to make a covenant. They go to Mount Sinai, God comes down, his presence comes with fire. There's an earthquake and there's a, a wind that blows and his presence comes down and God makes a covenant. A covenant is like a, a marriage vow. Marriage vow is a covenant, right? You think a legal contract. No, no, God makes a covenant with the people in Exodus 19. Look at what it says in Exodus 19. Um, let's go there in our Bibles. Exodus chapter 19. It says, uh, if you obey me fully and keep, so it goes Genesis, Exodus, the second book in those Bibles. I hear the pages, God bless you. Uh, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasure possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Exodus 19, God sets the stage. He says, look, you're gonna be my people, a kingdom of priests. You, your new vocation is to represent me to the rest of creation. You're gonna live in a way where people are gonna look at you as a people and they're gonna say, there must be a God. Look at how they live. You're gonna intercede on, the rest of the, uh, 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 on behalf of the rest of the nations. So you will be, for me, my people, and, and I, will, I, will be for, I, will be, I will come to you and you will go to them and they will, you will represent them to me. You will be intercessors. That's what priests do. This is their vocation. If you obey my covenant. But there's another thing that God does. He doesn't, he doesn't just give them the commands. He gives them the commands, by the way. He gives them the 10 commandments after this and says, this is how you're gonna live. And in Exodus 25, he says this. He says uh, in verse eight, then have them make a sanctuary for me. Have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So, so in Exodus, God not only gives them a law and gives them a covenant, he says, I'm going I'm to bring my presence to you. So it's in Mount Sinai. God chooses some people to show the world what he's like. And then he says, I'm going to build a tent, a tabernacle. A tent will be a dwelling place for my presence. Not only is the law and my covenant to you going to mark you, but now the presence of God is back with people. Remember, it was with people in the garden and then sin entered into the story and God's presence is removed. But now God brings the people back and his presence is at the center of his people. Are you with me? What does it say about God? He desires his presence to be with his people. We see these slaves are set free. We see um, God giving them a covenant to be set apart and a vocation for the world to see what God's like and God's presence is at the center of, this, uh, of his people. Look at God's desires in Leviticus chapter 26. I told you, you're gonna get all the Bible today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 26. Did we miss one? 
You want to keep going? You want to just show me you know all the Bible? Uh, someone was shouting out. Le- Leviticus 26, it says, I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. What does this sound like? Genesis. Sounds like the garden. It's a good name for a church, by the way. <laughs> Jesus, or sorry, God says he wants to walk with his people. God speaks his desires. God wants to invade his people. And and what does this say about the story of God, right? What does this say about the story of God? So often we pitch this idea that we have to get our lives right so that we go somewhere else after we die. We gotta get people saved so they go somewhere else when they die. But the story of scripture is everything happens here And God is not trying for you to get your life right. He's trying to invade your life so he can get your life right. And heaven comes here. Our best pitch to the world is not say your prayers that you can go somewhere when you die. It's that live the way you were intended to be in the first place, here and now, through a relationship with Jesus. That's salvation. And when you die, you just keep on living until God creates heaven and earth. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's how the story ends. So it goes from Exodus, or uh, excuse me, Egypt to Mount Sinai, and then we get to Jerusalem. So what you see is that they spend 40 years in the, uh, in the wilderness wandering because they disobey God already. And then they get into the promised land through Joshua, and God keeps reminding them over and over again to remember their covenant. Remember the covenant. Remember what God did. He freed you from Egypt. He carried you like wings, on wings like eagle. Eagles, so that you could be free. You were slaves and now you're free. He gave them the law. If you obey my covenant, you will be blessed. And do they remember? No, over and over again. They get to Jerusalem. They get their promised land. And then they, get, uh, they build this city, Jerusalem, through David. David builds this city. And it's generations later that um, they have a great king. And this king um, dies. But God promised a covenant to the King David. And then it's, they're, they're wondering what's going to be next because there's this, there's this idea that, that King David lived with such intentionality that God blessed King David. And remember, back in the day, kings represented countries. They represented the people. So even in the Old Testament, when you read about what kings did, it's a symbol of what the people did. So when the king was faithful, the people were faithful. When the king was unfaithful, the people weren't Faithful. So King David lived with a heart after God's own heart. And then he, built, uh, he wants to build a temple, but God says no. And his son, the son of David, gets into power in Jerusalem and he builds this epic temple. Right? God promises to keep the covenant like he kept with David. And, and he makes this pro, uh, promise. And I want you to see this in 1 Kings chapter 9. Go to 1 Kings chapter 9. It says this, uh, God makes a, a covenant with King David in Jerusalem. You guys with me? Yeah. Verse 9, it says this. Uh, uh, sorry, verse 4 of chapter 9. As for you, if you walk, write this, highlight this. If you walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart and uprightness, as David your father did, and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws. Um, let me read the, the next verse. I didn't have that ready. This is why you need your physical Bibles. Um, um, uh, it says, as uh, verse 4 where am I at? 
5. Thank you so much. I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father when I said you shall never fail to have a successor on the throne. He says, walk with me, walk before me faithfully with integrity of heart. Walk with God. Do you see the theme? Faithfully and, and follow my commands and I will establish your royal throne over Israel. Now go to uh, 1 Kings chapter uh, 11. Verse four, look at what it says about Solomon. This is why I love the scripture. Within the text, within the scripture, it criticizes itself. In our text, in our Bible, we, there is self-critique about the leadership. No other ancient document did this. Ancient documents lied about the victories. They embellish stories. They make their kings look out a certain way. They live for thousands of years and so on. And other ancient documents our ancient document, the Old Testament, criticizes the leadership of its time. First Kings chapter 11, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Just have your heart set on God. Have your heart set on God and I will bless you. A few chapters later, Solomon who has 700 plus wives and concubines, his heart is not fully devoted to God. Do you see this? What, is, what does Solomon do during that time? He builds an empire. He builds a temple and he builds palaces with forced labor. He becomes the new Egypt. Israel becomes the new Egypt. Jerusalem becomes the new Egypt. And God says, remember my covenant, remember my covenant. But God wasn't done with his marriage to Israel. So out of grace and mercy, God sends judgment on Israel and the Babylonians besiege Israel. Are you guys following along the history lesson? You still good? This is our Bible. Most of it's Old Testament. This is, and just wait, in just a few moments, your mind is gonna be like, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. Babylon, the Babylonians come in, they besiege Jerusalem, they, they ransack it, they, de, uh, they destroy the temple of God, and they, they are pushed into exile. They're, they're taken away from Jerusalem, they become slaves in, in, uh, under another military superpower, and it's in Babylon that prophets begin to speak again. Now stay with me. The prophets begin to talk about God acting in human history again like he did in Exodus. But this time, it's not just for Israel. This new exodus will be uh, this movement for anyone oppressed anywhere, anyone experiencing injustice anywhere. God's gonna act in history again like he did before. And he's gonna bring a wave, a movement unlike anything you've ever seen. So all these Old Testament prophets begin to speak about, they begin to dream within a prophetic imagination about God doing something. And the phrase they use in the Old Testament is this phrase, the day of the Lord or the age to come. So write this down. So you get to the Old Testament and you read about this electrifying thing that God's gonna come and he's gonna do this new thing. So I want you to see all these things. Go to Isaiah chapter two. This is where we're gonna get into our Bibles. You thought there was already a lot. Here you go, here we go. I promise you it's gonna land and you're gonna be like, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus. 
But in Babylon, the prophets begin to talk about God doing something, a new exodus. In, ex, uh, in Isaiah chapter two, here we go. We're gonna have these on the screen. You can highlight them in your Bibles if you're a fast and you know where Isaiah is. There you go, here we go. Isaiah two, it says, in the last days, what is he referring to? The age to come, the day of the Lord. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. That's Jerusalem or the temple. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem, he will he will judge between nations and he will settle disputes for many people. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will no longer take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. When the age to come happens, there'll be peace among the nations. There'll be justice and mercy. The the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge of who God is will spread out all over the world. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, same book different chapter. Verse one, I'm going to go fast. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Verse six, the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the seed or as the seas. Do you see what's happening? This is an image of what it's gonna be like when God decides to act in human history. Again, there will be someone that from, the, from the lineage of Jesse and he will be marked by the Holy Spirit. There will be peace among nations. There will be a restoration of shalom. This is a picture of shalom coming to the earth. Are you guys Okay. Jeremiah chapter, um, let's go to Jeremiah 31. It says this, uh, at that time, what's he referring to? The day of the Lord. Are you guys guys a good Bible class today? I hope so. Declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they will be my people. Skip to verse 31. The days are coming. Do you see what he's talking about? Look at what God's going to do, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was their husband to to them, declares the Lord. This is the, the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. When God decides to act, it says that he will make a new covenant with the people. And the law, which was a strict 613 commands, won't be something you have to strive for anymore. It will naturally be something you do. Does anyone need to hear this? 
You don't have to follow the rules anymore. It will flow from you naturally. You won't have to think, I'm sinning. I keep messing up. I got to fix myself. God's going to give it to you. That's going to be the new covenant. His law is in your heart. His spirit is in your heart. He's going to help you and he's going to forgive you of your sins and wickedness. This is good news. When God decides to act, these are the things he's going to do. We're just getting warmed up. Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel, as they say, or Ezekiel, uh, verse 36, verse, uh, sorry, verse 24 of chapter 36. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle you clean, uh, clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and turn from, uh, and, and from all your idols. This is good news for somebody today. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. I will call, uh, I will save you from all your uncleanliness. This, the story goes on. Ezekiel says, when the day of the Lord comes, when the age to come happens, you're gonna be given a heart of flesh. Anyone here filled with bitterness because of the pain and the trauma of their past from loved ones that did not love you the way they were intended to be? It's caused you to keep your guard up, keep your heart far from people. God says when the age of the Lord happens, that your heart that's hardened by the world will become a heart of flesh again. That you will be compassionate and empathetic. You will experience a new sense of meaning towards other people. And not only is your heart gonna be transformed, God's gonna give you his spirit. Do you see what's happening in the scriptures? Do you see what God's pointing to? I could keep going. Daniel chapter two says, in those times, it, uh, God's kingdom will rule all over all other kingdoms. In Amos chapter nine, it talks about, on that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. What was David's fallen shelter? For 33 years, there was worship day and night, 24-7 worship at the center of Jerusalem because of David. It was a shelter he built where people of the Lord could hear prophecies and prayers and worships being sung to God. That was what David did in the beginning of his reign as the new monarch, as the new king. He established a shelter. In other words, when, when God begins to move again, when God does this new thing, this new exodus, it's going to, exodus, it's going to be marked by God's uh, shelter, the shelter of David being restored, the altar Day and night worship, a place where you can access God at all times. Zechariah says all sorts of things. And then Joel, the famous Joel says, and afterwards I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Why am I giving you so much text? I want you to see the story of God in the lens of what Jesus comes to do. The age to come would be marked by healing and wholeness, and shalom, and peace, and justice, and the knowledge of the Lord, and the resurrection of the dead. Isaiah chapter 26 talks about the dead being raised to life, God forgiving sins, God giving people new hearts, God giving people new spirits, God pouring out his Holy Spirit, and God's kingdom reigning over all the other kingdoms. Now we're in the story, so let me recap. Here we go. It starts in Egypt. God starts something after a group of people were enslaved for 430 years. It moves to Sinai. God chooses a people to covenant with and he says, you're gonna represent me to the world. It moves to Jerusalem where the people of God lose heart and they displace, they're displaced because they forgot who God was. And it's in Babylon, God begins to speak to the prophets and dream about a new exodus. And then what happens in the Bible is this. 
the people of God come back. And it's not like the prophets said. Remember, if you prophesied something in the Old Testament, it didn't come true, you were stoned to death. The people of God come back, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the walls, and it's not an exodus. It doesn't happen. Malachi ends with this prophecy. It's the last book of the Old Testament. Go to Malachi chapter 4. It says, see, this is, he's talking about the, what's going to happen when the age to come happens, when the day of the Lord comes. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great, day, great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. End of the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi. So the people of God are waiting in anticipation for the promises of the, of the prophets to come into life. 430 years, the Egyptians, uh, the Israel, Israelites were enslaved to Egypt. And then God sends a messenger. And there's 430 years of silence between the Old and New Testament. You can't make this stuff up. There's 430 years between the Malachi prophecy and the beginning of the birth of Jesus. And here's what I love, because it's so poetic. I love poetry. 430 years of silence. And then you go to Luke chapter 1. The last prophecy of the Old Testament is God sending a prophet, Elijah, to prepare the way. Malachi, uh, and Luke chapter 1 begins with the story of this priest named Zechariah. And Zechariah is married to Elizabeth. They don't have any kids. And Zechariah is, is serving his, his duty as a priest in the temple when they're doing worship. And he meets an angel. And the angel says to him that he is going to, his, his wife's going to become pregnant. And they're going to have a son. And it's going to be the, the, the person that prepares the one for Messiah. And then because he doesn't believe it, the angel uh, makes him go mute. And he's silenced which is symbolic of the 430 years of silence between the Testaments. And the first word spoken by a new prophet is in, first, or in Luke chapter 1, verse 63, when they're wondering what the name of the son's going to be, Zechariah opens his mouth and he says, his name is John. I'm going to send you a prophet. He will prepare the way. And the first prophetic word of the New Testament is his name is John. And then things get interesting because Jesus comes onto the scene and John chapter one says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God became flesh and blood and dwelled with his people. And Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, honey, it's time. And everyone knew what was expected to come. Healing, the resurrection, new hearts, new spirits, justice, wholeness, peace, new exodus where God would restore everyone everywhere to what's been lost. And guess what? Jesus goes around and he begins to do the very thing that was promised. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He brings justice to the injustice. He cares for the poor. He heals. He does all sorts of things. He announces jubilee and salvation salvation. And it's the beginning of the move of God. And it's the beginning or the continuation and the climax of all things. And what you see is Genesis 
to Malachi is pointing to Jesus. And when you get to Jesus, you see all of history is at its climax in the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. The story of God gets to Jesus and Jesus says, you got some things wrong. I'm gonna correct your theology, which we'll talk about tomorrow or next week. I mean, it could be tomorrow. Talk about next Sunday. But Jesus corrects their theology about how they want a literal physical kingdom on earth. They want to get their guy in office. They want to defeat the enemies with a sword. And Jesus says, no, there's another way in the kingdom of God. And we're going to take over, but it's not going to look like what you do. It's going to be self-sacrificial love. It's going to be gentle and generous and kind. It's going to be like a, a seed that's planted and it's the tiniest of seeds in the garden, but eventually it becomes the largest and it will be a place where the Gentiles are included. Oh, not them. Yes, those people you don't want in, they get in too. This is what Jesus does. And this is the story of scripture. You see that there are these themes, God dwelling with his people. God dwells with his people through Jesus. And then we get to Acts and God sends his Holy Spirit. It's the fulfillment of Joel. Now we all have access to the presence of God. In the Old Testament, it was specific people that got the spirit at a specific time for a specific purpose. Now we have access to God's presence always because of Jesus. That we, not only do we not have to follow law, but God empowers us to live with freedom and joy and peace and wholeness. You don't have to follow a religious uh, a ladder or climb to, to God. God actually came down to us and he doesn't want you to get your life together. He wants, the, he wants to get your life together for you. You don't have to figure this out on your own. He wants to comfort you and empower you. This is the story. And what God promised in the Old Testament, he fulfills in the life of Jesus. And then he says, there's other things coming. Because the story ends in Revelation. And I love the story of Revelation because it gives us the ending. And I, if you were at Christmas, you heard me preach on this, that it's really great when you know how the story ends. I talked about when you're watching a story for the first time. Like, for example, my son was watching Star Wars for the first time. This is years ago. And every scene, he was so intense. He was so nervous with every plot twist. Is he dead? What happened? What's he going to do? He's asking me all these questions. I'm like, just wait. Watch it. I'm, I'm chill. I've seen this 500 times. I know exactly what's going to happen. But, but I know the ending. It says, Christians, we know the ending. We don't have to live with anxiety. Death no longer has a sting. We don't weep or mourn like those that don't have hope. We know where the story's going. And let me say this. If it's getting dark in California, it's because we're not shining our light. If we keep leaving, there will be no ref, uh, reformation or revival. So church, buckle up and shine those lights. I heard this story of a famous preacher. She was talking about going to Walmart and they bought these flashlights and they were talking about how they got these flashlights at a Walmart and they were from Australia and her kids were loving it and they got these flashlights and the little girl says, mommy, let's go find some darkness. Oh, you see, this is what Jesus comes to do. He wants you to be captured into this movement and then he wants to invite you in so that now you carry this into the ending. We'll talk about that later. That's, that's in a couple of weeks. But this is a story I want you to hear that, um, that God, uh, God has Jesus at the story, at the center of the story. That this story uh, is this beautiful narrative from Genesis to Revelation. I want you to see the big story I want you to see how Genesis, as we talk about forming our identities, as we talk about forming our worldview through the scriptures, this is how we form our worldview. 
okay? Your worldview is how you see the world around you. You need to be immersed in the narrative of scripture. And the story of scripture is all of those things. It's a covenant. God made a new covenant with you. He's, he's invited you into a relationship, not through law and practice, but because of the cross, you have a new covenant. That every time we come together and we, we take communion or we worship, we're reminded of the covenant that God's given us, that his son was the sacrifice for us to live in freedom. Yeah, so it's, it's a new covenant. But there's also a story of God desiring to dwell with you. Like he, from the beginning of time, he wanted to walk with creation. Right now, he wants to walk with you in your life. He wants to empower you to be free, not to follow a bunch of rules, but to, to be in your life. The Holy Spirit invades your very being to show you how to live. So that when you're down, you're not turning to Chinese food and Netflix. Sometimes that's okay. Some dumplings and Netflix. But to the presence of Jesus. It's about his presence being with you. It's about exile and homecoming. You were once enslaved and now you're free. You were once without a home and you were a wanderer and now you're home. And you're not just home, you're a family. You're in the family of God. You're adopted into sonship or daughtership. You've been given a new identity. This is the theme of the Bible until we get new heaven and new earth. This is where it's going. What do I want you to know today? It's a really good story. You're not the center of it. And I want to tell you to repent from being the center of your story because you're not the center of your story. God is. And we live in a world right now where it's so narcissistic. Everything is telling you it's all about you. It's not. It's about Jesus. There's no hope for giving you a bunch of spiritual disciplines and practices to change. It's not going to change you. There's no hope to making your life about coming forward and getting rocked in ministry time every week, or now twice a week because we have Wednesdays, or six days a week because we have a prayer room. The hope is you getting to Jesus, you surrendering to Jesus, you laying down your life to Jesus, you laying your story before him and say, God, what do you want with my story, my life? It's yours. When you do that, that's when real change happens. And can I just say, that's when revival comes. It really is. Throughout history, it's men and women surrendering to Jesus, laying down their plans, laying down their, their hopes, their dreams, their lives, and surrendering to Jesus with everything. So I want to invite you to that this morning. We're not going to do ministry time like we've normally done it. We're going to, we're going to worship. I don't know what it looks like because I haven't done ministry this way for 14 years. God convicted me this week and said, just tell them to get to me. <laughs> 